Again, we will be in uh, our, our series, Calm in the Chaos. And if you would be opening up to Psalm cha- uh, chapter 25. Psalm 25 is where we're going to be in God's Word this morning. There are, I, I just I enjoy the Psalms because they capture who we are. We're going to read that in a moment, but as we are, as the talk of reopening life is occurring, I thought this week that this is also reopening a lot of anxieties for folks. I thought about all of our introverts that we know who absolutely love being at home right now. Oh, great. I don't have to go around people. This is awesome. I don't have to get, I don't have to get dressed up. I don't have to think through what I'm going to do. I, I get to stay at home. You probably are thrilled with all you extroverts, like I can't get anything done because I need to be around people. But you know, you know being around our families is one type of stress. Uh, but being, being around people is another type of stress. You know, we looked at last week, peace in our homes to address the stress that happens when we're just within close proximity for a long time. But there's also a peace that we need around people. And God wants to give us that peace. And I believe Psalm 25 is going to help us uh, gain some perspective in that. You know, uh, being around people stresses us out, period. If you're an introvert or extrovert, doesn't matter. Being around people will stress you out. Stress out about our appearance. Uh, people stressing these days on their hair color and their haircut. Can I just get somebody to cut my hair, please? We stress about our appearance. We stress about what we're going to wear. Are we wearing the right things? Are we going to be accepted by the people who are going to see us wearing this? And we stress about the words that we're going to say. We stress about what we sound like. Stumbling over our words, like me combining words to make new words. I don't know where that comes from, but we stress about what we sound like and what we say. We stress about driving around. You might be a person that just cannot stand all the other drivers on the road, and you would like them all to stay at home while you're on the road because they make you stressed out because they can't drive well. We stress out if we made the right impression on folks. We stress out if, if we think others are thinking well of us. Did I say something to cause friction? Did I, did I not say something that I needed to say? We stress out because we don't know how we measure up with other people. How do we measure up? How do we, how do we fit in? Do we fit in? Do we not fit in? We stress. It brings stress. And being around people stresses us out. Uh, the distress we feel around others oftentimes creates a, a tornado of fears and worries and anxieties that will shut us down or ramp up our efforts to control other people's perceptions of us. I want you to think well of me, so what do I need to do to change how I look, how I say, what I do in order to get you to think well of me, in order to get you to think what I want you to think of me. All these anxieties, all these anxieties seek to rob the peace that God wants us to have that he has secured for us in Jesus and he has promised to us 
in his spirit. He wants us to have this peace. We, we bump up against these social anxieties. Now we have social media anxieties. I read a few months ago there, there's now a new anxiety associated with Venmo because people see their friends giving their money to one another and paying them back for things, and they think, did I get leaved out? Uh, leaved out. See? <laughs> did I get left out of something? They did something. They, did they go out to eat together? Did they go on a trip together, and, and they didn't invite me? We have all these fears and worries. Look, the Psalms, that's why we go to the Psalms in our fear and our worry. The Psalms are, are very helpful to identify our distresses and to adjust our perspective on our circumstances so we'll look to God for his peace. And that's why Psalm 25, King David wrote Psalm, uh, wrote Psalm 25, we're going to benefit from his perspective. So many of the Psalms are cries to God amid distressing situations. We identify with them so well because they're real-life cries that we can cry to God. It's important to see where psalms end up, though. There are very few psalms that just end with, where are you, God? Period. Question mark, done. There's a few of those out there. But many of the psalms start there, but they end up in a place that says, God, even though the world gives way, I'm looking for you. I know you're there. Even though you might be silent, I know you're there. The Psalms end up on God. The Psalms address our situations in order to capture our souls. We feel it deep down inside because God's going after the depths of who we are. So let's read Psalm 25 together. Oh, our title for today is Peace for Common Fears. Psalm 25, King David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely 
and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Lord, we ask for the power and anointing and illumination of your spirit to be with us, that we might have your word capture us deep inside in order to bring healing in order to break strongholds, for us to enjoy our friendship with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. I apologize. Did I forgot a slide? It's becoming a habit. You need to keep the habit up. I'm sorry if you're following along on the, the PowerPoint and didn't get a slide there for the verses. Our, our main caption today is this. The peace we long for to carry us through life is realized in a soul-deep confidence from our identity in Christ. And I think even though David doesn't know Jesus uh, by name yet, he, he knows of a Messiah potentially that will come, but David trusts in God's ability to deal with his sin. That's what we're trusting in Jesus. We trust that God dealt with our sin in Jesus. David's longing for the Messiah. We are rejoicing. In the, in the Messiah that has come. But that's why for us, it's an identity in Christ. But David goes after an identity. He wants to be reminded of who God is to him. And he's also reminding himself by telling God who he is to him as well. Now, in this, uh, in this psalm, there are some key elements that give us understanding to the distress that David was in. And he gives clues to very common fears that, that are known to all of us. And the first thing, he, he, he's, he's a soul in distress. He uses that word. Uh, bring me out, verse 17, bring me out of my distresses. Now the first thing that we see that David experiences and he asks God to deliver him from his shame. David's plea for God to not let him be put to shame is a common fear for all of us. We feel shame deep within us. And we fear shame that comes with being exposed. We, we are fearful of others seeing us for who we really are. We fear the shame of embarrassment, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, wearing the wrong thing. This is why we have those dreams of showing up places naked because we don't want to be exposed. Uh, the, the eyes of other people on us is terrifying to us. We wear clothes today and we stress about clothes because we have shame and we try to hide our shame. We, we also try to hide the knowledge and this is what our shame is. Remember, this goes back to Adam and Eve. They felt shame that's why they ran and hid and they sewed fig leaves together to cover their, the first clothing known to mankind. They tried to cover themselves because they felt the knowledge that now they knew 
God's perfect, I'm imperfect, and peace has been broken. That's what we feel in shame. But fear also, uh, uh, shame is also a fear of judgment. We will avoid judgment, we'll avoid people we think will judge us, or we'll actually attack people who are judging us or who we think will judge us for our shame. We want, we want to keep far from shame, and so we'll, we'll shame others so we aren't shamed. But let's talk about avoiding. We will avoid people we don't compare well with so as to not put ourselves in situations where we might feel judged. We'll avoid being laughed at. Look, there's guys that are waiting. Uh, in verse 2, let not my enemies exult over me. E-X-U-L-T, that don't, don't give them joy in my shame, God. That's what, he, that's what he's asking. We, we don't want to be laughed at. We don't want to be the center of attention. We, we don't want our inadequacies exposed. We don't want to, when we feel inadequate, we don't want to project that or be around people that might point it out. We will avoid situations, or we will ramp up our fight to not be exposed. We'll, we have a fight response, like the flight or fight. When we fear shame, we'll run or we'll attack. We will go on the attack shaming others so the light won't be put on us. You know, lying is a fight response to shame. We will make our lives bigger. And this is where uh, social media has not been helpful for our lives. We will make our lives bigger and better than they actually are because we hope that we could achieve that one day or we want everybody else to think that we are, we are really not something that we are. That's lying. We give off the vibe that we've got complete control. Everything's under control when really in our minds there's chaos and in our emotions there's complete chaos. For those outside of a relationship, a saving relationship with God, shame is a good thing to bring about an awareness of our desperate need for salvation, an awareness of our sin, so we cry out for a Savior. And the Spirit's role is to convict the world concerning judgment. For those in Christ, though, shame turns into a tool of the enemy to nullify our growth and witness for Christ. If we're too focused on self, we won't be focused on Christ. So the enemy is all too, all too good at pointing a finger at us, shaming us into fruitlessness and inactivity. David is in touch with shame. He's also uh, talking about an affliction and trouble. David asked God to consider his affliction and trouble. In verse 18, he has felt his heart enlarged by the trouble. And the trouble is enlarging in his heart. And given his pleas for pardon and forgiveness of his sins, perhaps he's staring at the result of his failure. Maybe the trouble and the affliction that he's going through is a direct result of I've just, I've bombed, and I'm, this is bad. I failed. Our fear of failure can be a crippling fear. We fear the constant reminder of past failures and sins that will cause us, we, we don't want to be reminded of that, so we'll isolate ourselves physically 
We'll close ourselves into a room or a house, or we will, we will isolate ourselves emotionally so we don't have to fear even the thought of potentially being reminded of a failure in the past. We also fear future failure. We fear failing in the future so much that it'll make us not even try something. Many of our troubles in heart are the result of a misplaced desire for affirmation. Listen, when we bump up against failure, we bump up against a desire for, for us, for somebody, just to say, it's going to be okay. I love you. You are okay. Now, when we crave affirmation, we will work incessantly performing up to standards that we think will get affirmation from other people. Please just give me, give me the affirmation. Give me, give me a job well done. And if we see our achievement as the key to affirmation, we will be crushed under the fear of our failure. It will make us go really hard to achieve or it will cause us to sabotage things just so we can get the failure over quicker. Just, just come on. I, I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad. Just... A- affirmation, again, is not a wrong desire. It's a misplaced desire. Where we're looking for that affirmation, are we looking for people to give us that affirmation or are we looking in the right place for it? What we strive for to get the affirmation can often be the problem. We look to people to give us affirmation that we crave, but it leaves us just looking at ourselves again rather than looking at God. And, and when we look for people's affirmation, people's voices are louder than God's voice over us. A, a real aspect of this is shown in the Pharisees in John 12. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There's a glory that comes from God. Uh, There's an exaltation that comes from God. Humble yourselves and God at the right time will exalt you. There's a glory and an exaltation and an affirmation that God wants us to have. But when we look to people to gain from them what only God can give us, fear and worry and avoidance or attack result. David also describes a loneliness. He says in verse 16, for I am lonely. David asked God to meet him in his loneliness. Our interaction with others, weirdly enough, when we're interacting with other people, it often makes us feel like we're alone. And when we feel alone, we will physically distance ourselves from others, creating, we, we, when we feel lonely, we make loneliness the, a fact. But all it creates is an isolation vortex of just looking deep inside over and over and over again. We become more aware of our inferiority in comparison to others. Uh, These are usually, the feelings and the thoughts that we have of our inferiority are usually deep-seated thoughts that hold us hostage and perhaps could be uh, spiritual strongholds that linger over us that really need some concerted effort and prayer, uh, uh, potentially fasting, to overcome and break those strongholds. But we have truth that breaks the strongholds. When we feel alone, 
we will cave into self-hatred. I hate myself. We might look for other people to hate us. Or when we hate ourselves, we'll, we'll throw out little clues to try to get sympathy from people. And we don't want encouragement out of our self-hatred. We're actually looking for sympathy so people will recognize and see us in our inferiority. I'm just having such a bad day. Now, if encouragement, if, if you tell that to somebody and they encourage you and it doesn't lift your eyes toward Jesus, maybe it's the wrong type of encouragement, but if it's a godly encouragement that says, look at Christ, He's beautiful. No matter how bad a day it is, he's good and he's beautiful. If that encouragement, see, this is a good litmus test for how you are, uh, are battling yourself. If, you are, if you're battling inferi- an inferiority complex of sorts. If encouragement doesn't lift you, it just makes you sit. No, you don't understand me. See, I, I understand. I really have it bad. My situation is not like anybody else's, so your encouragement has no effect on me. Now, when we, that's the isolation vortex. No, leave me isolated. And what I'm really doing in trying to get sympathy from you is for you to say, it's okay to be alone. It's okay for you to be caved into yourself. That's twisted. It's unhealthy. And it's not the peace that God wants for us. It's not the life he has for us to walk out and to walk with him in. If we discount people's encouragement or defend our situations as unique, we're probably battling inferiority. And it's a fear that will drive us to interact with people a particular way. Now, I think a a fourth component, what we see in this psalm, is a fear of violence that David has. He's asking, these these guys in verse 19, with what violent hatred they hate me. David was concerned with enemies who really wanted to do violence. They wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. Now, we might not have enemies to David's caliber, but we know the fear of injury, physical harm. We live in, in a broken world where evil is done by evil people, even people who don't appear to be evil. And potential of injury is a real thing that we face. We face this. It doesn't mean we're looking to be reckless with our lives, but we need to flee violence. But we may be running from things without a confidence that God really is in control and that death is not our biggest fear. He really is in control. We don't live recklessly but we live with peace as we take life steps. We live with a confidence that he is with us and he's in control. We may have a, uh, this, this season might be where you're battling fear of sickness and disease. I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid. You know, there, this COVID-19 has taken the life, of, uh, taken the life of, of thousands of people we hear globally. You know, that's a reality, but more people are dying daily from other things than COVID-19's numbers aren't even touching. Death is a reality. Injury happens. Sickness and disease happen. But if we don't have a rock-solid understanding for how God might use that to glorify himself, we will run from situations and from people. 
without a confidence or trust and faith in God. David said something interesting, that all of these, his soul in distress felt like, look at verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. These fears become a net that trips us up. It's a snare. In Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. These common fears that we deal with, I think we don't realize how much they are, are binding our feet together, tripping us up constantly. So when we try to walk with the Lord, we just are falling into that shame. We're falling into the affliction and trouble of our failure. We're falling, uh, the desire for affirmation, we're falling into these inadequacies. We're just reminding ourselves over and over and over again. That God wants us to be set free. And so maybe our thought needs to be, God, set me free. Set my feet free from this net so I really can walk and love you. And, and, and run the race that you have set before me with endurance. These fears will make us stuck. And the fears that come with associating and interacting with people are termed as the fear of man. A biblical term. And the fear of man... Proverbs says, is a trap. It's a snare. The answer to the fear of man is to trust the Lord. Look, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So when we're fearing, we're trusting the wrong thing. He will free our feet so we will walk with him freely. He frees us so our souls will then be lifted to him. Interestingly, when uh, you see what David says in verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. What's interesting is in the very uh, previous psalm, uh, in Psalm 24, he says in verse 4, he who has clean hands, who will ascend to the hill of the Lord, who will stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift lift up his soul to what is false. Probably why these two are our companions in the Psalms is because he says, I'm not lifting my soul up to what's false. God, I'm lifting my soul up to you. And that's, you feel that in this, uh, in this cry of Psalm 25, you feel him saying, God, I'm lifting this to you. I'm coming to the right place. I'm coming to you. But he comes to him with a humble heart. This is not an arrogant approach to God saying, God, you better do this enough already. I'm sick of it. No, God, I recognize you're in control, and I recognize my faith and my trust is in the wrong thing, and I want to put it on you. So, God, show me yourself enough so I can, I can re-engage my heart and my soul with you. David asked God to intervene and meet him in his distress. And God wants to do the exact same thing for us. He wanted to do the same thing for David. He wanted to meet David right in his distress. He wants to do that for us. And rather than run and hide, David calls out, oh, God, Rather than us running and hiding, well, when we run and hide, God's the one that calls out to us, just like he did Adam and Eve. Now, that's really the first call of the gospel. Adam, where are you? He was running, he knew knew his shame and he ran, trying to manufacture a way to cover his shame. God says, no, I'm going to do that. God actually killed an animal and covered uh, Adam and Eve with the clothing of the animal to point to the sacrifice that Jesus would be to clothe us in his righteousness. But here, this this humble heart is coming to God with phrases like, make me know, teach me, 
lead me, pardon me, be gracious to me, deliver me. These are cries of a humble desperation that says, God, I need you, and I'm surrendered to you. And he knows the promise that when he does that, God will respond. David knows the promise that when he res- God responds to the humble. He doesn't re- he's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. David demonstrates that. And David wasn't asking for simple relief. Just, will you just get these guys off my back? Will you just make me showing up to places easier? He asked God for truth. Now, he's not asking for truth just so he can make a good decision or say the right thing. He's asking for truth to be on the inside of him, to be in him. He doesn't ask for something. He asks to be someone. God, I want, I want to be you, with you so, so much that you are in me and I feel it and it results in different thinking and different walking and different actions. He asks God's, for God's word. To be in him. And he, he asked for what is ours through the Spirit when Jesus in John 17, 17 said, Sanctify them in the truth. When he's praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. David wants the word, he wants the truth. He's asking for the Spirit. But, church, we have that. We have the Spirit in us, we have the truth in us. That what it's to promise, to lead, and guide. And we know his grace to deliver us and rescue us. David's desire to know the truth. He he was humble in his asking, but he knows that it's going to be the result of the truth. See, when the truth is in us, the result is not a, a, a weird confidence that we can walk rightly. It's humility. And humility is just recognizing who God is and who we are. It's a proper estimation of ourselves. It's not self hatred. It's not condemning any self-worth that we have or value. It's saying, God, I know who you are in your truth. I know the truth about me, and I know the truth about Jesus coming to rescue me from my sin and from my fears, to give me the Spirit, to give me his peace. Now, even though uh, David was swaying in the currents of fears, he knew God wanted him to be secure and stable And he trusted in him. And his confidence to go to God is because of the character of God and the proven faithfulness of God's character with his people. He knew God's mercy. And he knew God's steadfast love. And he knew that those, his mercy and his love did not depend upon his own personal performance for God. As if God was saying, if you just do a little more, I'll love you more. No, that's not. David knew that's not God's love. God's love comes first and it comes freely. He knew God's provision. He knew God's provision was not the reward of his, achieve, of his achievement. And he knew God's response to him wasn't contingent on his worth. Like if we, we think God's going to respond to us if we're, if we're morally beautiful, if I just do some more, then God's going to respond to me. If I just read my Bible more, I pray more, then God's going to respond to me. No. And I can't stand when people say this to me as a pastor, thinking that I'm closer to God somehow. Hey, brother, just pray for me, you know, because I know he hears your prayers. Yeah, I'm thankful he hears my prayers. He doesn't hear my prayers because I'm morally beautiful or I have some of this weird, unique holiness of clergy. God hears my prayers because God has saved me. 
And he's given me his spirit that cries out in a way that I can't even groan to cry out to God to, to meet me. And it's the same spirit that's in everybody he saves. Everybody. So we pray with confidence. David prayed with confidence. We pray with confidence in the character of God. Not in our worth. Not in our performance or our achievement. His deliverance. David's deliverance from fears was not the removal of a circumstance, but, catch this, it was the reminder of his relationship with God. See, what we need is to be reminded of a friendship that we have with God. That's what David said. Look at verse 14. It's the main point of this psalm. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The friendship of the Lord. So what is the soul in friendship with God. David needed the reminder that he was a friend of God. You haven't left me, you haven't abandoned me. And God was his friend. He went from fearing things, look at all this stuff around me that I'm fearing. He went from fearing things to fearing God. Now this is a weird thing. How does fear help us with fear? Let me try to explain. He feared God in order to remove temporal fears. How does this work? When we fear God, our worries convert to wonders. See, the fear that we have of God is a wonder and an awe and a how can this be? That's a fear. It's a, it's a, a worship experience. Now, when, when we're looking at the fears around us, our own inferiority, failures, shame and judgment, when we look at that, a fear of being hurt, when we look at those things, we're, we're not, there's no worship in that. So we end up going to worship something. I'm, I need to worship this in order to get affirmation from you. I need to worship this in order. And, and we, this is the false. We lift our souls to what's false. And when we look at God for his proper beauty and Jesus' proper beauty, we look in the face of Christ. Listen, our worries convert into wonders. And we wonder, we think about the right things as we're thinking about God. When we fear God, our attention and affirmation is removed off of man and put on God. Rather than worrying about man's opinion of us, we wonder at God's opinion of us. We wonder at our identity that Christ has won for us. James uh, chapter 2 the apostle says this, the, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Faith is our response to the fear of man and the common fears that we face every single day. Now, faith doesn't show up, catch this, faith doesn't show up to bully fear out of the, the picture. And a lot of times we have that opinion that faith just comes and says, get out of here, fear. You don't have any place here. That's not what faith does. What faith does is respond honestly to the fear and say, I'm not trying to bully the fear out. I'm trying to put the fear, I'm recognizing that fear in order then to recognize how my attention and faith and trust is in this, what, I, what I'm looking to calm my fear rather than on God who is the fear. He's the wonder and the awe. 
And David says, for those who are friends with him and know this, they will know the covenant and be reminded. God shows them the covenant over and over again. When we trust God, he renews for us the covenant he's made with us. And that renewal is not, he's not cutting a covenant again. He's reminding us of the benefits of that covenant. The new covenant that Jesus sealed with his very own blood. That's what he reminds us of. The covenant of good. Look, the the well-being In verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being. That's pleasantness and good. It's promised to us. The covenant uh, that promises the removal of our shame by the covering of Christ's righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins that cause our troubles and afflictions. It's removed because of Christ's sacrifice. The companionship of the Spirit to never be lonely again and the promise of eternal life so death will no longer inflict its fear. In our hearts. It's a covenant of peace. When we see the friend that we are to God, but look, the friend he is to us. See, a a slander term for Jesus was friend of sinners. But he was a friend of sinners. When we submit to God and put our faith in him, we deal honestly with our fears rather than, than think of ourselves uh, this is, rather than think of ourselves differently we're able to think of ourselves rightly without fear of judgment we acknowledge the reality of our shame and we see how then it was put on Jesus who died in our place under our shame naked to remove that shame from us. We acknowledge the reality of the affliction and trouble due to our sin. Yes, we have things that pop up in our lives because of our sin. Past sins, yes, we still deal with the consequences. But rather than try to ignore the consequences by achieving more or performing better, we turn from seeking our affirmation in people to hear the booming voice of our heavenly father and his booming voice saying look his master said to him this is a a parable of of god's relationship with us as his servants his master said to him well done good and faithful servant all of us crave to hear god say that but the enemy of our souls reminds us of our shame and judgment that we think that God, he really has not judged everything in Jesus. There's something left that's being judged in me and the, the failure and the inadequacies that we bump up against and the affirmation that we desire through work and money and other pleasures. We, we just want, we want somebody to give us a thumbs up. Big thumbs up from Poppy. But it's misplaced if we don't go to the Lord. See, Looking at faith, looking in faith at our fears makes us honest with the fears. We acknowledge the reality of our unworthiness. It's not the same as valuelessness. It's unworthiness. And then we trust what God says about our worth in Christ. Catch this. This is huge. This is very important. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, that's verse 3 in Ephesians. So usually we go by that without stopping to recognize what it really is saying. With Christ. Now, remember, the, the answer to our worthiness 
the answer to our, our understanding of our self-worth, esteem, the answer is to not think of ourselves more. Actually, to think of ourselves rightly. But listen, we are to think, God, I want to sense your love for me. I want to sense your pleasure in me. So maybe we'll go to the scriptures and we're looking for all these promises that God says that he loves us. And there, there are those promises. But listen, in order for us to deal with the fear of man and the common fears that we face every single day, we have to recognize God's love for Jesus that we have in him in heavenly places. What is? Oh, this is cool. He, he proclaims, he booms his voice when he says that he is pleased with his son. Matthew 3, verse 17, this is at his baptism. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father says that. I love my son. I am pleased with my son. And then he follows it up at the transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 5. He was still speaking with them. Behold, uh, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. See, when we want to know if God loves us, we look at God's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for God, that in John 17, he's asking for his people to be combined with that love, to know it, so we can be at peace. At peace with ourselves, because we're at peace with God. Then we can truly enjoy how he's made us. We can embrace our quirkinesses. We, we're, we're, we think rightly about them. We embrace who he's called us to be around, not because we want affirmation from them or for them to approve of our achievement or our performance. We do it because God has settled the matter in our souls. And he says to us, like he says to Jesus. Remember, Jesus, when those things happen, he said, this wasn't for my benefit. This is for all y'all. We're all them. We're the ones sitting there for our benefit. God the Father says, this is my loved son. I love my son, and I am well pleased. So if we have everything that Jesus has in heavenly places, guess what? We have the experience and the pleasure of knowing God is well pleased with us. But, but, but what, about, what about, not about our performance, not about our achievement. He affirms us before, like he's telling everybody before Jesus starts anything in ministry at his baptism, which inaugurated his ministry, he says before he does any miracle, I want everybody to know, I love my son. My son, I love him. So before we do anything, when God saves us, he says to us, I love you. And that's what we should be hearing him say. It should be the loudest voice we hear when we wake up in the morning, when we go through the day, in our dreams, everything. We're asking, God, I want to hear your booming voice. I love you, and I'm well pleased with you. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, when we feel that, then we can walk into a room and not fear everybody's critical comments or looks or what we think they're thinking, which we don't know what people are thinking. Why are we so convinced that we think we know beyond a shadow of a doubt what people are thinking? Ludicrous. It really is. We acknowledge the reality of injury in life that's due to evil, and we see the Savior who died afflicted, shamed, 
lonely at the hands of his enemies. Why? To rescue us, to deliver us, and lead us and guide us in his truth. Showered, reminded of his love. So we have hope, church. We have hope for every situation that brings us anxiety. I'll finish with Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We don't cower. Excuse me, we don't cower anymore. We stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Listen, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Oh, feel, hear the truth and may it sink. We can trust God. God is not waiting for a day to shame us. See, I, just, I was quiet until the day I just wanted to expose you to... No, we have confidence he's not going to shame us in front of people. It's the opposite. Jesus says, when you're dragged before your enemies, I'll give you, my spirit will give you the words to say. You don't have to worry about it. We have his love. Let's pray to experience his love. Let's be reminded also of the new covenant. That's what we're going to transition to communion in order to remind us of the new covenant, the covenant that we have because of Jesus' blood. So if you get your elements together, we're reminded, and, and the Apostle Paul, or Jesus also, whenever you do this, this is a remembering category, a remembering of all that Christ has done for us. And that last night before he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. My body that is shamed. My body that's, that, that's horrifically afflicted. I'm going to die alone. But I'm giving it to you. That salvation, forgiveness of sins and salvation is yours. So we remember as we take the bread. Jesus then took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. The covenant that the prophets said would be a covenant, one of good, because the Holy Spirit would be inside of you. And this is a covenant that's unbreakable because it's a covenant that is secured by imperishable, everlasting, living blood. That's how we have confidence in the new covenant, because Jesus has secured it for us forever not dependent upon our, our performance or achievement. It's all dependent upon his performance and achievement, so we then have the blessing of his righteousness clothing us. We then have the blessing of his peace inside of us. We have the blessing of hope that we walk with every day. Be reminded as we take the cup. Lord, how special these moments are as we are reminded of all that you have done to bring us into a relationship with you. 
Lord, so often we're, we lose sight of who you are and we try to make our way to you rather than living in the blessing of what you've done to come to us. So Lord, I pray that that would now become the truth that we live by as we, we battle these common fears in our lives. God, we want your peace. We want your well-being. God, remind us that it's in the friendship that we have with you. That's where our peace lies. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name.